Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, brought to you in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions and the North American Association for the Study of Religion. I'm Christopher Cotter, and he's... I'm David Robertson, and our interview this week is by Brian Fallon, and it's with our good friend Jack Sonis on the subject of the Axial Age. And I'm sure Jack's got plenty to say, so let's just pass straight over. Carl Jaspers created the term Axial Age in 1949, after considering that the Bhagavad Gita, the Pali Canon, the Book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, the writings of Plato and Aristotle, the Tao Te Ching and the Analects of Confucius were just a few of the philosophical and theological texts penned in the middle centuries of the first millennium BCE. For Jaspers, this collection of philosophical and theological works was a sign of an era of social maturity, a maturation that Jasper felt left simpler formulations of such thinking in its wake. To discuss the Axial Age, its consequences, credibility and critiques, we are joined by a long-time team member of the Religious Studies Project, Dr Jack Sonnes. Thanks very much for joining us today, Jack. Thanks, Brianne. It's nice to be here. Dr Jack Sonnes completed his doctorate in 2013 at Macquarie University in Sydney. After tutoring in the areas of sociology, psychology and European history, Jack has recently taken up a position at Western Sydney University teaching the Masters of Research program. Jack's wide range of research interests include post-colonial theory, discourse analysis, micro and macro level social theory, the politics of memory and saunitarianism. Jack is in fact the founder of the global saunitarian movement and the founding president of the Australian Sweat Bathing Association. So um, before we dive into your work on the Axial Age, um, I think it would be beneficial to uh, for us if you give a general introduction and historiography of the Axial Age, as it has really grown and changed from Jasper's original manifestation. Yeah, that's right. It has changed a lot. Um, Jasper's was basically the first person to use the term Axial Age. The, the idea wasn't um, uniquely his. Uh, basically, it refers to the period, as you sort of alluded to in the introduction, roughly from 800 to 200 is the date that they give, BCE, which saw the rise of the so-called world religions um, across Greece, Israel, India and China. Uh, sometimes Persia and Zoroaster is included in that as an early um, sort of glimmering. And the basic characteristics are that these are religions founded by individuals that proclaim some kind of level of, uh, certainly of freedom from um, pre-existing tradition, usually an emphasis on kind of uh, love and kindness embedded somewhere within there. Um, at least that's what a lot of people look at. Um, and But for Yasmus, though, this also corresponded to the rise of say, the birth of reason in ancient Greece. So it's not just a kind of a social maturation. It definitely is that. But it's also, in his view, a kind of intellectual maturation of humanity. And he even describes the Axial Age as the, quote-unquote, the point at which man, as we know him today, came into being, which is quite a sort of a, an extraordinary claim. Uh, one obviously understands what he means, the whole idea that the Greeks, um, you know, are the founders of the Western tradition. That's what he's referring to. Um, and so the term axial age really, uh, it comes from the word axis, right? So it's like an, a hinge point. It's like the, the axial period in world history. It's like this hinge point um, from prehistory into history. History being about kind of um, dynamic sort of change, 
Whereas prehistory and, you know, indigenous or primitive or savage peoples be more about conserving uh, the, the, the order of the cosmos. So this is a really key distinction um, that the, you know, the axial traditions are seen to break through. This is a term that gets used a lot, a breakthrough to transcendence. Um, the idea of uh, moving beyond the, the, the monism of the world, a kind of, um, you know, a oneness with the world represented apparently by the, um, uh, by indigenous uh, religions, as they're now called, savage and primitive peoples back then, or in Jasper's language, Naturfolka. Um, so there's this distinction between Kulturfolka uh, folka and Naturfolka. So pe- pe- peoples with culture, historical peoples, peoples with um, uh, writing primarily, um, but also forms of thought and social organization that, that come along with writing. Um, versus Naturfolka, on the other hand, peoples of nature who are sort of, you know, embedded in the natural cycles, um, uh, of nature, um, the mere rhythms of nature, I think Hegel calls it or something like that. And, um, yeah, hey, like Jaspers was very, very Hegelian. We'll come to that probably in a, um, shortly when discussing the critique. But Hegel, uh, over a hundred years before him, as many people know, had theorized this kind of narrative of world history, the development of Geist, of spirit, of reason. Um, and which is effectively, a, you know, the development of religion as well in a lot of senses. Uh, moving from the east over to to Greece and then upwards sort of through, um, you know, to eventually to Germany, um, into Protestant Germany and culminating in, in Hegel himself, more or less, um, is the impression we get. And so the axial age kind of reflects the point at which Geist sort of emerged in humanity. So if we follow this narrative of world history that before, you know, one or 2,000 years ago, humanity was basically a bunch of sort of animals running around, largely embedded in nature with little capacity for um, autonomous self-directed change, then the Axial Age is that period. The key difference, however, between Jaspers and um, Hegel is that Hegel's got a very clear hierarchy where, you know, Greek, it starts with this really gl- like um, small glimmering of reason in, uh, in the East, in sort of China and India, and then moving through to Greece and then, as I said, culminating in Protestant Europe. Whereas for Jaspers, he, I like to say that he kind of pluralizes the Hegelian narrative, which means that instead of there being this staggered kind of revelation of Geist in the Axial Age, once and for all, Geist kind of appears um, in humanity. And this is what was so crucial for Jaspers, is that it appears to have, these changes appear to have taken place um, independently, but simultaneously. So that's really, really crucial for him, because that... that, um, for him is evidence that this is part of the deep nature of humanity itself. And, and it's important here, and we can move now onto the historiography of the period because Jaspers publishes this um, in a famous book called On the Origin and Goal of History, which was released in 1949. So obviously only a few years after the war. And Jaspers, it's sort of a really, really fascinating story and as yet largely untold. Um, where he started to kind of work in this direction in the 1930s, but it was basically the shutdown of Germany under the National Socialists. His wife, Gertrude, was Jewish. They tried to emigrate to Oxford in 1938. That failed. And then, so they basically wound up in Heidelberg for the entirety of the war. Um, Bunkered down, he's got health problems. You know, they're sort of in survival mode. Um, they have to put Gertrude into hiding a couple of times. And apparently on the liberation of the liberation of Heidelberg on April 1, 1945, or whenever it was, um, Gertrude was literally sort of, um, her, her name was on the roster to, to be on a train sort of about a week, a week, wow. a week later. Yeah. Um, so it, it, um, her time was pretty much up, but luckily, um, the, the Yanks arrived. 
So in, in this kind of torrid time, Jaspers is sitting there reflecting, you know, he's reading with Gertrude um, in their in their home and um, he's reading the Upanishads um, and he's reading, uh, well, he's also reading works of Shakespeare, but he's especially, he's reading the Old Testament as well and reading things, especially Jeremiah, he talks about a lot. And I should actually just read, there's a really brief um, explanation of the of the period that he gives on the second page of The Origin and Goal of History. I've got it here in front of me and it sort of captures everything. And he says that the most extraordinary events are concentrated in this period. Confucius and Lao Tse were living in China. All the schools of Chinese philosophy came into being. Those of Mo Te, Chuang Tse, Liu Tzu, and a host of others. India produced the Upanishads, the Buddha, and, like China, ran the whole gamut of philosophical possibilities down to skepticism, materialism, sophism, and nihilism. In Iran, Zarathustra taught a challenging view of the world as a struggle between good and evil. In Palestine, the prophets made their appearance, from Elijah by way of Isaiah and Jeremiah to Deutero-Isaiah. Greece witnessed the appearance of Homer, of the philosophers, Parmenides, Heraclitus, Plato, of the tragedians, Thucydides and Archimedes. Everything implied by these names developed during these few centuries, almost simultaneously in China, India and the West, without any one of these regions knowing of the other. Um, and that's as I said before, but it's it, it, it's this um, you can hear hear what he's sort of referring to there. Everything implied by these names, right? All the cultural developments implied by these names. So when he's sitting there in his um, uh, you know darkened house during World War Two, while um, the Western tradition is just being sort of exploded around him, he's sitting there reflecting on all of this. And then in nineteen, he actually announces this in nineteen forty six at a conference in Geneva, and he says we he kind of makes the sketch of the axial age argument. And says that we've got um, this. We can see clearly in the, the the traditions of humanity that we have the resources to overcome what has just happened. Um, and that's so. That's kind of the guiding motivation. If you read the book, it's it's very it's a really interesting philosophy of history. That's not really a history of the axial period at all, but it's sort of a just a discussion of history framed with this at the start. So that's Jaspers. There's a lot more to say about that, but I'll sort of kind of leave him for now because just to sort of quickly skip through what happens next. Basically, um, in the 1960s, the idea converts into a more sociological idea, right? This is a key shift. Jaspers is very much writing in the genre of philosophy of history. The next time this concept sort of emerges is in um, actually a, a famous article by Robert Bella in 1964 um, called Religious Evolution. He doesn't name the axial age, but he's very clearly referring to it. And I think he's studiously trying to avoid reference to Jaspers because he doesn't want to uh, associate it with a philosophy of history idea. Um, uh, he's trying to do it from the more um, sort of um, theories of social evolution kind of perspective, um, you know, led by Talcott Parsons and others. And then that leads into a bunch of sociological, um, so, sociological, comparative historical sociology style conferences. So more in the tradition of Max Weber than than Hegel, for example. And actually, interestingly, Jaspers was a new Weber in his life and was kind of idolised him before he died in his early years. It's a really interesting story there as well. Um, but that so that sociological shift. What they start to do is actually compare um, sort of historically these societies that Jaspers mentioned, rather than kind of uh, philosophically there's a key publication in 1975 I think could be 1976 um, uh, the journal Daedalus which is the journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences or something they run a big um, uh, a special edition journal um, about uh, uh, you know this, this this period 
um, with a whole bunch of specialists from different areas. Then you get a few more, a uh, few similar books, like multi-author books over the course of the 80s, uh, 90s, and even into the 2000s. And then long story short, it culminates in what, in a book that I'm assuming that most um, listeners will probably have heard of by now, uh, Robert Bella's book, uh, Religion in Human Evolution. And the subtitle is From the Paleolithic to the Axial Age. So 50 years after he published the, the, the thing in 1964, he, he kind of comes back with this massive book that he started in 1998 when he retired. Um, so that's the historiography, I suppose, of the period in a nutshell. It's a big nutshell. but Yes, quite a large nutshell. <laughs> um, now, just before we go on to uh, your work on the Axial Age, um, there's a bit of talk about the second Axial Age and the third Axial Age. Uh-huh. And I was just wondering if you could briefly run us through that. So, yeah, there are terms that I think are very flimsily deployed um, that are not really part – they're definitely not part of the um, proper um, sort of historical sociological discussion, the, i.e. the discussion of the kind of specialists. Um, with that respect, it's, it's usually part of, of – um, of the only places I've seen that – that notion seriously kind of floated are in fairly fluffy works that kind of talk about new awakenings in the modern age. Um, you kind of can't really have a second axial age by definition yes. in, in, in Jasper's yeah. sort of sense. So it's like, oh, big profound. If anything that's a big profound shift counts as an axial age, and now that we've got this technological, like the rapidity of technological evolution, which is what the first axial age kind of um, was the cause of that, then we're just going to keep having all these axial ages. So for those playing along at home, don't use the term second axial age, third axial age. It's just, it's, um, they're, they're, they're really analytically vacuous and flimsy. Yeah, they kind of defeat the purpose of the original term yeah. and all that Jaspers is talking about, really. Yeah. Um, but your work is quite a heavy re- critique of yes. the as- axial age and um, everything that it stands for, um, particularly in a post-colonial context. Um, so what do you think of the axial age now that you've run us through it? So I really don't like the idea at all. I think the fact that we use this narrative is a symptom of the fact that the West still really hasn't come to terms with the history of colonialism. Um, and that might sound like a bit of a, a stretch, so I can briefly try and explain what I mean. Um, basically, the problem with the Axial Age, I mean, I r- recall that I said that what Jaspers does is attempt to pluralize the Hegelian narrative. So that means he's trying to, um, uh, it's, it's like an anti-racist kind of approach, right, that he's trying to do. Yeah, the, uh, another book that will be famous to um, or well-known by, by most listeners is Tomoko Masazawa's book, The Invention of World Religions. And, uh, and the subtitle, though, is particularly important there. Um, how European universalism was preserved in the language of pluralism. So the idea being that the, this whole um, discourse on world religions, which we know kind of really kicked off after the 1950s, actually about the same time as the Axial Age narrative, um, it ostensibly is very pluralistic because it says, look at all the, the great religions. Aren't they all like wonderful and equal? And yeah, but there's still a big hierarchy over those and the, the, the primitive religions or savage religions that were only called indigenous from about sort of glimmers in the 1980s and 90s, but it's really only in the 21st century that that's become a prominent term. You still see Evans Pritchard using theories of primitive religion in 1966. Um, Bella refers to primitive religions in 1964, that kind of thing. 
Um, and so basically it's reproducing. My key argument is that the axial age narrative reproduces stereotypes about the, the intellectual and moral capacities of um, colonised peoples, which are people in small-scale traditional societies, the people that you know fit the, the bill of a um, uh, savage or primitive, according to a Hegel or a Jaspers. So while ostensibly this is a really pluralistic-sounding narrative, it completely sort of embeds and accepts and reproduces the idea, uh, like all these stereotypes about um, uh, small-scale traditional societies such as the fact that they don't really have reason um, and then they're, you know, not really able to reflect that they don't change mm. as well, that historical societies change, whereas the whole purpose of uh, traditional societies is to keep life on an even keel. And to some extent that is, of course, true, but, I mean, it's, um, uh, it's, no, it's definitely um, not unpro- unpro- unproblematically true and, you know, Western societies for all of their, you know, um, uh, sort of dynamism on the one hand are incredibly conservative as well. So my, my concern is really with the reproduction of stereotypes. And I can try and give you like a sort of um, example or two. And a good way to think of it is uh, uh, some some listeners will, will recall Thomas Hobbes' famous idea. We all know Thomas Hobbes' famous idea about man in the state of nature, right? Um, the actual quote is really, really interesting where he says, I've got it here, I won't read all of it, but he says how in such a condition there is no place for industry, um, there is no culture of the earth. There's no navigation, no use of commodities, no building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, uh, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So that's the image of, um, you know, traditional peoples, of, of, of the Naturvolker, right? Man in the state of nature. And it's this image, it is this kind of depiction of Naturvolker, which is carried along right through to Jaspers and even, shamefully, through to Bella's work um, in, in, the, in the 21st century. Um, it's, it's not intentional by that point at all. Um, it's sort of intentional in Jaspers because he's a mid-20th century kind of person with no real capacity to see how racist he is. Um, but by the time we get to Bella, the fact that it's not being um, challenged is, is, a, is a real problem. Um, I mean, Jaspers says, for example, that pre-axial peoples, so this is the key categorical distinction, there's axial peoples and there's pre-axial peoples. Pre-axial peoples have, uh, have in common a magical religion, destitute of philosophical enlightenment, devoid of any quest for salvation and lacking any breakthrough into liberty in the face of extreme situations. What was later called reason and personality was revealed for the first time during the axial age. Now, basically, in the whole tradition that we described from Jaspers up to now, this kind of stuff has never been called into account. I've not found a single... There's, you know, Jan Asman, who's a really interesting contributor to this debate, has one or two kind of asides. There's a few other asides, but no one has systematically gone through and looked at the fact that the whole sort of narrative of this, um, the uh, the axial age, which hinges on a kind of set of cultural comparisons, that there are axial peoples and non-axial peoples, um, that this is just shot through with, with embedded stereotypes from uh, colonial discourse. I won't even read some of Hegel's stuff, but Hegel's got these like disgustingly racist comments, like really aggressively, overtly racist comments about the inability of Negroes to think. Um, they're sort of uh, the, the fact that they can barely even understand that they are uh, like a human subject. Um, and Jaspers more or less reproduces that. And then no one really kind of, 
challenges that later. As I say, Bella himself is, you know, it's like Jaspers. He, he's, 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 a, he's a seriously um, sort of committed moderate left winger, moderate to sort of like reason. I wouldn't call him an extreme left winger. I mean, he's very much got a leftist streak in him, um, but it's just not seen. And another person is Habermas, Jürgen Habermas. He's not really, um, this is a point where like the historical sociology and religious studies really kind of mesh together because Habermas's um, sort of one of his most famous books was the, um, uh, the um, was the most famous essay was the reconstruction of historical materialism. And that was kind of then re, uh, that was sort of embedded in his um, sort of uh, Meisterstück, the, the theory of communicative action, where he kind of compares, he, he even chapter two is something like a comparison of the modern mind against the, 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 the primitive mind to sort of see what's distinctive about the modern mind. But again, he's just rehashing racist tropes from anthropologists and, um, you know, travel writers as if they're legitimate data, as if they're like unproblematic descriptions. Um, and he's even still doing this now. There's publications from 2013, 2014, 2015 that are clearly like echoing this language. And it's like, what hope do we have? What hope do we have when even like the leftist scholars cannot see this racist garbage just getting like structuring the whole way the conversation's happening? Whenever I try and raise this stuff at conferences, people are sort of a bit put out. They're not, they're really not that interested. I mean, a few are. Um, but it's just, it's so sort of distressing in a way that it's, it's like, it's not um, immediately, immediately obvious when you look at it, but for people who are trained in this, like your Bella and Habermas and those kind of people, it is just kind of astonishing to me that they can't see what they're doing. So that leaves us in a really sort of interesting slash tricky position where you say, okay, well, what are we going to, um, there was clearly major changes that took place in this period. How do you describe them? Um, and that's a legitimate question and a really interesting, fascinating one. Um, but before we even get to that point, uh, and I have uh, like a lot of thoughts about that. I'm, you know, the final third of the book I'm sort of working on will, 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 will you know, be an attempt to address some of that. But before you even get to those questions, we really just need a full scale acknowledgement of just how like problematic this whole axial age um, story is. So my like um, big thing, I suppose, is that we just got to stop using this term. The axial age should not have credibility. It's like world religions. They sh- you shouldn't use the term world religion if you're like analytically responsible and politically responsible. If you're aware of these issues, you should not be using those terms. You should. It's kind of like a self-imposed constraint or something like that. I think about it a little bit like vegetarianism, right? You kind of say, right, for, for, a, whole, for a set of like ethical reasons, I'm not going to consume that stuff, which means I've got to like, I don't even know how I'm going to eat now, but I've got to reconfigure my diet and I will not consume those things. It's a bit like that with these terms. It's like, I don't even care how I describe the first millennium BCE. I don't care how I describe these large scale transnational kind of um, religions, but I'm not going to use the term world religion and I'm not going to use the term axial age because they're bankrupt. They're like founded in kind of racial ideologies. And like, if you keep using them, even if you're aware of this stuff, you feed that discourse. Like we just need to like starve those terms of oxygen. Now I don't, expect that will happen at all at a broader scale but within critical religious studies it should happen there should be no talk of the axial age there should be no um use of the term world religions like we need to kind of follow through all this critique otherwise we just kind of do circles citing tomiko masazawa russell mccutcheon and others you know about the problematic nature of these terms and then we just kind of keep using them or something so um yeah there's a few, <laughs> a few thoughts it's very difficult because 
a lot of the time when you get your students coming in in first year or second year to religious studies, the term particularly world religions mm. is uh, so embedded in the way they think about um, the sociology of, of culture and humanity and um, to undo that is quite um, dramatic for them in some ways. Um, a lot of them wouldn't know the term axial age, but I understand from what you're saying that world religions and axial age uh, fundamentally feed each other that, and are really part of the same way of thinking. They absolutely are. I like to say that the axial age is kind of like the world's, the world religions discourse in historical form mm. because it is the right, right, rise of the world religions. That You're right, absolutely the same paradigm in a different kind of articulation. Mm. Um, and you're right about the point that it's really tricky problematizing this stuff with, uh, with students in particular. So I guess we've got, yeah, two different issues. One when specialists are writing for specialists and the other is the kind of, you know, undergraduate education area. And there's lots of, I mean, these. I suppose all of the discussions about, well, how do we not teach, how do we teach beyond the world religions paradigm? Um, all this, that's where all, all of those kind of conversations, you know, um, kind of come in with relation to the axial age. And there's, you know, the great book that Chris and David have sort of um, spearheaded after world religions that is a, a genuine sort of attempt to try and, you know, move the conversation forward because it is really hard when you've got students coming in with preconceived ideas. And it, it's like anything um, where you need to deconstruct something, someone needs to understand it first. So it's kind of like if you try and problematise, you know, um, the Enlightenment as uh, not just the rise of reason but also the rise of, you know, like... Um, the most sort of uh, spectacular hypocrisy that the world's ever seen. Um, I mean, that kind of point can be made fairly easily, but the, for students to really appreciate the stuff, it's really, really hard in the context of a few weeks of a semester when they're not there for long enough to grasp. Like, I remember it took me quite a while to properly grasp the critique. You kind of sort of can see see what people are saying. You know, the first time I read Master's Hour, I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. I think I sort of get that. Man, but, it, but I had time to read the whole book over a few weeks as a PhD student where it was relevant for me to understand the critique. You know, in the context of undergrad education, yeah, I mean, it's going to be really, really tricky, I suppose. Mm. So I don't have any answers for how you should structure, certainly no simple answers for how you should structure um, undergraduate teaching in that respect, except to say that the the book by uh, edited by Chris and David is to my knowledge, the only one that's like a really genuinely like uh, it's a really, uh, it's the first like great collection that can be pedagogically useful. Mm. There is definitely other stuff scattered around. Um, uh, there's a few good blogs around um, that talk about this stuff, but yeah, so it is very, very difficult. Perhaps your work will become useful in um, teaching undergraduates Um we might wrap it up there. I think we've come full circle quite nicely, but um, what are you up to now where uh, you've just got a new position at Western Sydney University? You've got uh, this book on the axial age in the works. So what are you up to at the moment? So, yeah, the, the, the book would hopefully be good for undergraduate students if it ever gets written because I got, you know, as you, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, I finished in 2013 and I've basically just been teaching since then. I haven't, I, you know, I was doing casual teaching and then I got this, randomly got this lucky job to, um, teaching on the Master of Research. But that whole time I've had really only the three months of summer off because I've been teaching so, so much. In the short, you know, mid-year break, um, then I've had the Australian mid-year break. I've had, uh, I've gone to a conference. So basically every year since I finished, I've had only about three months and I've got like a chapter done there. 
Um, but it's been a really real struggle. Like I'm still, I need, I can't imagine when I'll finish this book. You know what I mean? Like I would need six clear months to, to kind of get back into it. I've got some really good mapping done early from when I had a bit more time, but um, so that's, it's a real classic post PhD situation where you get like sucked into the teaching thing. And then because you're doing that, you're not producing enough research to contend for postdocs. So if you ever go for a, t- a, a position with more research, everyone else who's applying has loads more research than you and the teaching sort of matters jack all. So that's a real struggle. I really love the teaching, um, but that's made it really, really hard uh, in terms of doing that transition. And now I find myself in a teaching role. It's got nothing to do with what I've done a PhD in. And uh, it's basically like teaching research methods, the new master students um, and teaching, you know, um, sociology of knowledge kind of stuff. Um, so it's really interesting, but it's just, I get this anxiety that I, it's slipping away, you know, that I'll, uh, you mean, you can hear me now. I haven't spoken about this for, for, for months or even years, really, but I, uh, since IHAR last, last August, which is almost a year ago. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, I'm very lucky to have a position, but in terms of trying to follow through and get my religious studies stuff done, it's really, really, uh, tricky. Um, so do you have any, uh, I guess advice for those people who are, going to wrap up their PhD soon or um, uh, in that immediate post-PhD period? Because you've been, I suppose, post-PhD for three years now. So Uh, It depends what you want to do, of course. Assuming that people want to convert their PhD to a job in in the religious studies field or whatever kind of field that they're in, yeah, obviously the key is to publish i mean that 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 really is the only way you um you're going to ensure that you can contend i mean there's been in the last five or six years i understand like a real saturation of applications for postdocs that anywhere around the world now because it's all international there's you know those alerts go around everyone who's kind of in that market is applying so the mm-hmm. stand it's just getting harder and harder and harder so you kind of need to be in it to win it you, you never you never know where your opportunity is going to come. So you've just got to keep um, hustling and pushing. Um, I suppose if you're teaching, then you need to still be working on, because uh, most of us are going to wind up teaching to stay in the game, um, you know, if, we, if we're lucky enough to get that um, work, if we kind of want to be doing that. So you need to be, um, it's great if you can teach on, on subjects in your kind of discipline. I had to teach, even before this one, I had to teach in like, um, you know, European history and kind of, uh, sociology and psychology and things like that. It was all really beneficial for me. I feel this is all going to make the book better eventually, but it, it, it meant that I couldn't like n- none of it could align um, with what I was currently doing. I suppose the other, the other thing is conferences, 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 conferences. If you, cause if you just like uh, commit and say, uh, yeah, cool. I'll get you. An, I'll, I'll, I'll like do an abstract of 150 words and then you get it in and you're like, I've got to write the paper. Then, um, that's a really good motivator to keep pushing the work forward, to keep getting it sort of seen. These are all, you know, um, there's no sort of revelations here, but that really is is what it boils down to. And then it's always going to be the luck of the draw. I suppose one other thing is willingness to move. Mm, and, that's yes. some, and that's something I don't have. I, I don't really want to uproot my life here in Sydney and go globe trotting um, for a bunch of reasons I won't go into, but that's not quite the game I want to play. So that drastically shrinks my options. Mm. Um, but even so, it would be really difficult because what, even if I said, right, that's it, I'm happy to go anywhere, I don't have a research record for it. Mm. Um, so hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll get there. But, um, yeah, this, uh, that, that's, that's, that, that's to be determined. I really, I really do want to finish this book one day, though, because uh, I'm just so angry about the situation i'm so and i'm just i know the story i know how to tell the story that if i can just get the time to tell it 
then it will put that put a resource there. I'd try and write it in the way that would be accessible to undergraduates while still being a full specialist kind of work. So, yes, well, I definitely think that your book sounds like a, a pivotal work that we really that we really need, particularly um, to problematize the term axial age and world religions. Um, both at an undergraduate level, a postgraduate level, and at a specialist level. We really need to be uh, thinking about uh, the way that we do present these um, ideas and uh, manifestations of society. So thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope that you get more time to write that book. Thanks, Brianna. It's been an absolute pleasure. I don't expect the time, but let's uh, let's hope. Okay. Thanks so much for that, Jack. Um, wonderful to hear um, a, a more restrained version of that presentation. Um, I remember um, in Erfurt um, back in August, there was a panel on the Axial Age. Um, uh, it had Jim Cox, Suzanne Owen, and Armin Gertz, all of whom have been on the RSP um, in, in days gone by um, speaking. And Jack's was the final presentation, and this was on the I think it was the Friday morning of the conference first session. So everyone was a little bit sleepy. And this is not to say that the, the other three presentations weren't interesting, but Jack came on all guns blazing, um, critiquing the concept of the axial age. And I thought it be, would have been wonderful to have recorded that session. It certainly woke everyone up. Um, but I'm glad that we've got some of that fire and um, that sort of well-placed critique onto the RSP now, so thanks. Indeed, and I was speaking to Jack the other day about um, possibly contributing to the revamped Implicit Religion Journal, which we, uh, the Religious Studies Project now, co-produce with uh, Equinox Publishing. Um, I am co-editor along with Jack Lachlan, and I was speaking to Jack Sonis about the possibility of either writing an article or possibly guest editing an issue somewhere down the line. So um, look out for the first revamped issue of that very soon. Absolutely. That was Erfurt that we were talking about. Another conference was um, the, the ISCON at 50 conference that Alid Thomas attended for us. So next week we've got a double header from Alid and a double ISCON um, week. We've got Kim Knott speaking with Alid about the, the history of the movement and, and the concept and then we've also got a round table um, with some practitioners and scholars who were at the conference as the response that week the years coming to an end as far as the RSP is concerned yeah there's only a few more weeks to go before our um, annual uh, hiatus in the summertime um, but we are all booked up we've got all of our um, interviews lined up scheduled yeah. we're still looking for a few responses but i want to thank everybody who responded to our recent call for new responses uh, new respondents rather um so we've added a lot of names to the respondent pool which is very exciting um one of which we got an email from uh, race mccreda um, who regularly listens to the podcast whilst raising his almost two-year-old son and i have um, <laughs> memories. I was going to say fond memories, but there's certainly, <laughs> there's certainly memories of of those days of uh, producing podcasts whilst warming milk and uh, trying to finish a PhD in in the hour and a half where my son was napping in the afternoon. Yeah, well, the RSP is your third child. Let's put it that way. It is, and in some ways, 
It's uh, been the least difficult child, although very <laughs> demanding in terms of time. <laughs> yeah, so we've got another three weeks um, of podcasts for you after next week. Um, but we'll, we'll leave it to those weeks for you to hear what they are. Um, as ever, YouTube, iTunes, Google+, Facebook, Twitter, now also on Google Play. And don't forget about our Amazon links. That's a really nice um, little top-up revenue stream that um, pays for everything. Thanks to our main sponsors, the BASR, and to Nasser, and also to the Australian Association for sponsoring our mailing list, which you can subscribe to on religiousstudiesproject.com. Very topical this week with our Australian contingent. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and just... Thanks for listening, mate. Cheers, Bruce. Now, workers. <laughs> <laughs>